0: Mark chapter 1. Those of you who knew the Christian faith, Mark is, is near the back of the Bible. It's amidst a group of books called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And today we look at Mark in chapter 1 where Jesus is beginning his ministry. Starting in verse 35. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he, that is Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. May God bless the reading of his inspired and inerrant word. You may be seated. Well, we live in a noisy world and sometimes we live in a noisy world where we have noisy hearts. And um, uh, we have so many things in our lives that clamor for our attention that we have responsibilities, we have distractions. If we're honest, we sometimes choose our distractions so as to not think about the hard things that we face in life. And amidst all the noise... People, places, and things call us spiritually like siren song. Over and over again, they call us to an uncentered and even distracted life where we often find ourselves following the latest demand. Whatever somebody says or something is wanted, we quickly respond to that. The result of living in this quick response mode is We often are not following Jesus with our noisy hearts. Indeed, one of my friends often says it this way when we get together. We talk about how our hearts are noisy. With a noisy world, we sometimes have our hearts that are so stirred up by all that goes on. And somewhere in this noisiness that we live in, we forget how to steward perhaps the most important thing we have in our entire lives... Our relationship, our union, our communion with God. And that gets to the big question today uh, that we're really going to wrestle with with the demands of life and with family, friends, our jobs, countless opportunities to use our times. How can the follower of Jesus find peace? How can the, the follower of Jesus find comfort amidst so much noise in the world? How, in other words, can we hear the call of God to live well with our lives instead of with noisy hearts? Well, in Mark chapter 1, we're going to look at how Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, handled the noise of his world and his time and how he maintained a clear mission to what he was called to by the Father. And my hope is in the process we'll discover not just the rhythms of Jesus, but rhythms that that would show up even in our own lives for peace. So we're in Mark 1, and we find Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry. And with the way Mark describes Jesus' life and ministry, you get the feeling a lot had already happened and a lot was about to happen. Look at the first verses here in in verse thirty excuse me, 35 and 36, it says, And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he, that is Jesus, uh, departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And, and Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. Now, the very first word we see in these verses that keeps popping up over and again, if you didn't already notice it, was and. 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 In fact, in our five verses, there are nine ands. And it's this picture that Mark is painting of movement going on in Jesus' life. Uh, In fact, throughout the book of Mark, as you go throughout the whole book, there are all these ands and, 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 and. And in some cases, you might even hear immediately, immediately, quickly. And there's this constant movement going on in the book of Mark. And the feel of movement is really that of Jesus' life and ministry. And to borrow from uh, C.S. Lewis's line, which in the wardrobe, uh, he said in the very early parts of that book that Aslan was on the move. Well, in the book of Mark, Jesus is on the move. And this is a very different view of the Christ and the God of the Romans' times, uh, their gods and their pantheon, sat up in the heavens disengaged very often. Oh, they might engage once in a while with people, but they sat and watched people kind of like entertainment, kind of like a YouTube video, just to uh, inspire, no, not so much inspire, but entertain kind of where they were from the heavens. Instead, here in the book of Mark, God the Son is on the move. He's not static. He is working. He is engaged with people. He is even affecting history itself. And if I dare say it, we might say that Jesus is busy. Now, that should be no surprise. Jesus has already been making an impact and being busy Uh, in the prior verses of our chapter, especially in Galilee and Capernaum, kind of his home area, if you will. In fact, look at verse 32 and 33. It's talking about his ministry in Capernaum prior to this text. It says, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. You can imagine, this whole city is wanting to see Jesus and have access to him, his teaching, his healing, even... His uh, taking care of oppressed people. And the result is that word on the street was that Jesus was the man to see. Everybody wanted to see Jesus in his time. He was a rock star in his time. But then comes the surprise in our verses of this text. In verses 35 and 36, instead of building an entourage, instead of fostering his fame right there in Capernaum and Galilee in his busyness... Jesus pauses. He does the unexpected. He pauses by going out early one morning before sunrise to seek God, the Father. And he seeks God in three ways here. All right? Check this out. Three ways that he does it. In solitude, in the wilderness, and in prayer. First, let's talk about solitude. Verse 35 said he got it before everyone else. He departed from the town, from the people, even from his disciples, in order to be alone with God. In other words, he seeks solitude. Now, here's an interesting thing. If you look at this language of how Jesus gets away and he he pulls away throughout the Gospels, he does this quite a bit. Uh, In fact, you'll find Jesus getting away and stealing away from the demands of life and people just to be with God. Solitude, uh, we have to admit, when we see this and hear this, Especially in our busy age, of so full of people and tasks and things to do, solitude is quite frankly a foreign thing to us. It is indeed a lost discipline in our time. Our days are so filled with tasks, music, TV, noise in the background, cell phone texts buzzing. We have so many other things going on, we do not know how to stop and be alone and even be quiet. I might even say our noisy souls are sometimes even addicted to people. I think that's part of the problem of what I find with my texts on my cell phone is I'm always checking, as somebody texts me, is there's always this expectation of connection. We don't know how to be alone even with our cell phone. Let me ask you something. When was the last time you spent time, even a stretch of time, alone? Alone with God in particular. Just you and the Lord. When was the last time you did that? Jesus thought this was so crucial to his spiritual life that you find in the Gospels this thread of him going alone to places, even lonely places, to meet with God. So that brings us to the second way that Jesus sought his God. The second way Jesus sought God was in a desolate place. And it says he went to a desolate place outside Capernaum. Now, the Greek word for desolate place here is the same word they use earlier in Mark for the wilderness. Now, the wilderness, uh, really, as a motif in Scripture, as a kind of this word picture in Scripture, is very important, even for the spiritual life. Remember, David fled from King Saul, when King Saul wanted to oppress him, into the wilderness. When um, That, by the way, is also where David wrote many of his psalms. Moses and the Israelites spent 40 years in the wilderness being sanctified, certainly, by experiencing all kinds of things with God while they were there. And that's because the wilderness is a place of testing. It is a place where you lack resources, and may I say it, you even sometimes face danger. In short... The wilderness is the place where you feel your need for God most acutely. Ever thought ever thought of that that hard places and hard times in your life those wildernesses where you feel your lack is actually a good thing that God has provided for you that hard and difficult times can be where you find God as your ultimate refuge. That's what the wilderness serves as. You have to seek God as your refuge in the wilderness. You see, seeking God is never about really bringing how great you are to the table, even bringing your victories, which sometimes we feel like we need to bring our victories to God. No, actually, we come to God alone in the wilderness with our need, with our lack with our poverty of spirit, to use the language of the Beatitudes. It's where we feel our ache. It's where we seek God in our ache. Third, Jesus sought God in a very specific way. Not only did he seek him alone, he sought him in the wilderness, but he also sought him with prayer in our text. Did you notice that Jesus, as God in the flesh, goes to God the Father in prayer? Now, here's what's interesting about that. Prayer in its very fundamental form is an act of dependence. When you pray, the very act of of praying is saying, "God, I need you. God, I want you. God, I'm seeking you." And you got to think now, wait a minute, Jesus is God. Why does he need to pray? Because he doesn't have any needs. Remember, God doesn't need anyone or need anything. There's a little thing called his ascetic he, he is independent totally of meeting people from eternity to eternity. But here Jesus, the Son of God, the God-man, is praying. What's up with that? Well, what you need to know is Jesus prayed as an act of, pen, of dependence as a regular part of his life. He did it because he felt his need before the Father. You know, Jesus also uh, prayed, uh, pulled his disciples away and would pray with them, usually calling them to rest. That shows us that prayer and rest go together. If you really want rest, and I'm not talking about just body, I'm talking about soul rest, That where you gain that peace in your soul. Prayer and rest go together like that. And then Jesus also not only prayed by by needing God in all these ways, but he stole away to pray for big decisions. Uh, He prayed 40 days before beginning his public ministry. He prayed before he chose his 12 disciples. And believe it or not, when he was praying about his 12 disciples he would choose, he was praying about Judas Iscariot, who he knew would betray him. Then, at the end of his life, Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he faced a mock trial, and the cross. And what did he pray? Why did he pray? Well, let's get to the why did Jesus pray question. Was it because he needed something from God? After all, what does the Son of God need? Well, there are two things the Son of God needed from the Father. And the first is this. The book of John talks at length about how Jesus prayed in order to enjoy the love of and affection of his Father and God. In other words, he, he prayed to enjoy relationship with the Lord. When Jesus prayed, he prayed things like, My Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. In other words, he relished the attributes of his Father in his unique relationship that he had with God the Father. He received love from the Father, and he gave love back in adoration to the Father. He wanted to know, he wanted to be known in prayer, in a loving relationship, the give and take he had with the Father. Now, here's what I would tell you guys <laughs> there is nothing more fundamental to prayer than this. Especially when you're in the wilderness, even when you feel really alone, and when you have a demanding life, what is the thing you need? Is it relief? That's usually the first thing we want, right, is relief. Or, in my case, a vacation? Well, that's perfectly natural. You'd feel that way. Nah, it's not relief or a vacation. When you feel your need in the wilderness, it's God you need, It's God himself in that living relationship and communion with him. The one thing you need in all of life is Christ himself as your hope of glory. When you pray, make your number one motivation, God, I want to know you and be known. I want to experience your love, and I want to love you wherever I am in life. Whether it's good times or hard times, I want to know you. That's what prayer is about. Granted, there is asking to prayer. And certainly Jesus asked of the Father. But his first intention was to know and be known with the Father in that dynamic of relationship with him. Yet, when he did ask of God, and God wants us to ask of him as his children, surely Jesus asked the Father for many things. But that brings us to the second thing that really Jesus asked for. You want to know what really Jesus got at whenever he prayed to the Father? What specific thing he was asking for? Well, the short answer is the will of God for his life. You see that in his prayers throughout the Gospels. is He's always praying about the will of God. and What, what do you want for me, God? And he sought not only the will of God, but he sought the strength to submit to God's will. Jesus in other words prayed my father who art in heaven but he also prayed thy kingdom come thy will be done when we ask for God from God we must be willing to submit to the will of God and what he wants even above what we want remember Jesus in the garden of gethsemane he steals away praying in the middle of the night while his disciples slept And while he was praying, he literally asked the Father, it says it right in Scripture, hey, if I don't have to do this dying on a cross thing, I don't want to be separated from your love and, and endure your judgment and your wrath on behalf of people. If I can get away from this, yet not my will, but thine. Even in the face of the cross, Jesus was willing to submit to the Father and to his will for his life. What did Jesus do when he prayed? When Jesus prayed, he was looking for strength. He was looking for strength. And he was most specifically looking for the strength of the Holy Spirit. That, by the way, is another thing we ask for. Not only the will of God, we ask for the Holy Spirit to fill us, to master our hearts. So we will submit to the will of God. To give us that peace that transcends all understanding, even when we go against the will of other people. Well, Jesus understood that most acutely in our text today. In fact, Jesus prayed for God's will in his life very clearly because look at the next text, next verses in our text, in verse 36. Simon, that is Peter, and those who were with him searched for Jesus. And they found him and said to him, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. What does he mean here? Well, Jesus, as you remember in the prior verses, has just done some amazing things. He's healed people. He's delivered them from demons. He's taught some great things with authority that people had never heard before about the gospel, about the kingdom. And now Jesus' fame is skyrocketing. His exit polls are up. The, the, um, the disciples are so excited about what's going on with all the talk and buzz about Jesus. They've gone to Jerusalem and hired a publicity crew to help Jesus. There are major companies in Jerusalem who are asking Jesus to do commercials for them. They said, forget about be like Mike. Now we want to be like Jesus. Everybody's really excited about Jesus. And Jesus uh, really is, I'm sure, impressed by this. After all, it says in this verse that Simon and those who are with him search for him And they found him. And then uh, Peter says in verse 37, everyone is looking for you. That is the same word, searching for you. But here's the thing. If you did a word study of search throughout the book of Mark, you know what you'd find? You'd think searching for Jesus is a good thing, right? But if you did a word study in Mark, here's what you'd find. Everybody who searches for Jesus in the book of Mark has an agenda for him. They have an agenda for him. Sometimes a negative agenda, they want to kill him. Other times, it's like, hey, man, we got a vision for how your life can be, Jesus. We love you and have a wonderful plan for your life, Jesus. Now, Jesus is clearly being pressed upon by the disciples with their agenda. They want to harness his fame. They want to engage him in any way they can. In short, the disciples want Jesus to be a celebrity. Now, think about that. You're in Jesus' shoes, and everybody wants a piece of you. At first, the fame feels pretty good. You know, like, wow, it's nice to be known, and people want to know me, and all that stuff. And you got to wonder, how would you respond to that? With everybody saying, look, this is what you got to do. We got to get your polls keep going. I mean, you're really building some momentum around here. What does Jesus do to this? Does he say, hey, let's leverage the fame? and build an empire here no you know what he says he says he prays and then he says we're done we're done in Capernaum we're out of here what we're out of here everybody wants to see you don't you want everybody to see you because they want to see you Jesus says nope we're out of here I got to go to other towns and preach See, what's interesting about this is with everybody pressing on on him, with their expectations of what they wanted of him, Jesus had real clarity coming out of prayer on what he was called to do, not what people wanted him to do. In fact, verses 14 and 15 tell us of, of chapter 1 tell us what Jesus was called to do. It says, go back in those verses, John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus saw his job as fundamentally proclaiming the gospel. Oh, he would heal people to affirm his authority. He would take care of people, deliver people from demons, all that. But proclaiming the gospel and getting the word of the kingdom of God arriving, that was his fundamental job. Not attending to people's desires. Now, let me be clear. It's not that people's desires or our desires don't matter. But think about this Jesus healed a lot of people, he delivered people from demons, he preached the gospel, but he didn't heal everybody in Capernaum, he didn't preach to everybody in Capernaum, he left them behind. Jesus knew his job and his call in light of what God wanted for him. So, Jesus' mission and life rhythm was driven by God, not by man, nor by culture, nor by anything else. Now, here's the big question for the day. Why does this matter to us in light of stewardship? What's this got to do with stewardship? Well, I would suggest to you that we too, all of us, are under serious and even tremendous pressure by our culture, sometimes our families, and certainly internal pressure of our own fleshy impulses to do things that conform to the standards of this world. There are explicit sinful ways through an oversex culture that misses the greater glory of God's gift of sex. Certainly those are explicit in our age. But, you know, there are subtle ways, too. How many of us believe busy equals productive? How many of us believe that um, famous equals effective? Well-known equals effective? How many of us, and this goes to the church business, how many of us think numbers equals success? Indeed, all of this kind of stuff is what feeds our noisy souls. And the only way to get centered is to do exactly what Jesus did in light of all this spend time with God through word and through prayer. If you'll indulge me, I'd like to tell you a distinct memory of my father, Jerry Faulkner, that I've had a lot of in the last few weeks. When we first became Christians 30 years ago, a lot of things changed in our lives, and one of the things that changed occurred in the wee hours of the morning. I would get up 6, 6.30 in the morning to get ready for high school, and uh, as I got ready, I would often walk, you know, half days to, to get some breakfast, and there in a dark room in the living room of our house, while it was still dark, sat my dad, fully clothed, ready to go off to work because he usually left pretty early in the morning. You know what he was doing? Is praying. It's so the one thing that stood out to me through the years about my dad is my dad's no Bible scholar. <laughs> my dad is no, was no extraordinary spiritual guy, but one thing he was as a praying man throughout his life to the end of his life, he prayed. He spent that time alone talking with the Lord. And you know why he did that? Because he, like me, we Faulkners, have noisy souls. And if there's anything that tames the noisy soul, it is that communion with God where you come to the Prince of Peace and he calms your soul. My dad knew that very personally. And I am proposing today that we, just as Ray mentioned earlier, need to get back to pursuing God in very practical ways every day in our lives by making time for him, by spending time with him. Just like Jesus did. You know, the old words for that is the quiet time, devotions. And uh, I'm proposing that if there's anything in your life that really matters, it's that time where you spend time with the Lord seeking His face. If Jesus, the Son of God, can make time for God the Father and He's God in the flesh, I think we can too, and we're broken sinners. Jesus calls us today in our noisy, noisy, restless world with our noisy, restless hearts to not find our rest until we find our rest in him. If you feel rushed, and I feel rushed all the time, you got to know Jesus calls you to the calm of his presence. This is so important to Jesus that it must be important to us. In John 15, Jesus says an interesting thing. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. Do you want to be effective in your life and really live in the calling that God's given you? Don't jump ahead of where God is. Spend your time with Him first. Go hang out with God in meaningful ways. The implication is clear. When you spend time with the Lord and you commune with Him, you do relationship with Him Life in him starts to hum. You get a rhythm that is God's calling, not the world's calling or your bright ideas. And the result is you're be- you're be- you-, you will bear fruit. That's the result. Quiet times with word and with prayer are a great way to be changed and for the soul to be tamed. Now, let me be clear. I cannot show you one verse in Scripture that says, thou shalt have a quiet time. Can't do it. And don't let anybody, even me, tell you otherwise. However, through a thousand years, thousands of years of Christian history, we have learned that the combination of word and prayer alone with God has powerful effects on our souls. Word and prayer is the means of grace. It's It's how we get to know God and God knows us and reveals us and how we are empowered to follow him. And a quiet time really looks like this. It is a dialogue with God. I love that language Jeff brought up earlier about worship being a dialogue. That's exactly what time with God is like. It's a dialogue. And it goes like this. It starts with the word. You listen to God speak in his word. You listen to God speak, and if you pray on the, through the Spirit to listen in the Spirit, you'll find that um, words will pop. God's Word will pop to you. It'll, it'll make sense. Something will kind of stand out to you that will apply to your life. Reading the Bible on a regular basis, like Ray talked about earlier, is a great way to do that. Now, personally, I like to journal. Now, you don't have to journal. There's nowhere in the Bible says you have to journal But journaling is my way of doing Bible study. And uh, with writing, for me, uh, writing clarifies thinking. I kind of have all these thoughts, I don't know what to do with them, and writing clarifies that thinking. Another thing you could use with the word is the navigator's hand analogy. You know, the navigators teach that the Bible is the sword of the Spirit. See that in Ephesians? And what it teaches is that you've got you got your hand to grasp the sword and use it properly. You need to read the word. You need to listen to the word, study the word, memorize the word, and then to really grasp the word. Like I've suggested earlier, you meditate on it. You take it and let it marinate in your soul. Those five things help you to grasp the sword and use it properly so it's good for your soul as well. You know, when I was in college, I struggled a lot with legalism. It still crops up in my heart these days. It was often oppressive for me and for other people. And then I started Roman, started reading Romans one verse at a time my junior year of college. I was so longing for grace, I wanted to kind of dive into what grace meant. And Romans is a great place to do that. And I got to tell you guys, the words of grace changed me. They changed my heart. They They blew through my heart in a way that I softened to God and to people out of my religiosity. It freed me and changed me, all because of God's word speaking to my heart. What's the second thing we do in quiet times? We pray. We pray in quiet times. We speak to God about his glory. If you struggle to pray, Jesus has helped you out. He's given you the Lord's Prayer. And here's what you do. You pray the Lord's Prayer as your outline for prayer. You pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then what you do is you stop right there. You say, hallowed be thy name. You are a unique God above all other gods. You're loving. You're infinite. You're an infinite God, holy and infinite in your love. Therefore, your love is unlike any love there is in the world. Whereas we, people like me and men in this world, love conditionally and say, what's in it for me? I'll love you if you give me what I want. Nah, your love is holy and infinite so that you keep loving. It's different. It says, I'm going to love you even when you don't love me. You are an amazing God. See how you can do that? That's what you do with the Lord's Prayer, is an outline for prayer. Now, some of you, when you pray, you don't have words. And here's what I want to encourage you is Sometimes there is the prayer of silence. The last few weeks, as I went through all that we went through in my father's death, There were days I showed up with the Lord and my Bible in my hand. I had nothing to say. I had prayed for healing. I had prayed for mercy. And I just had to wait on the Lord. And you know, there's something to being still and knowing that God is God over that moment, like Psalm 46 says. To calm the soul before God and say... There's nothing I can say. You know my needs. The Holy Spirit, as Romans 8 says, will groan for me when I can't speak. Pray for me. Pray with me, Holy Spirit. Quiet times keep us centered on Christ as Lord and Savior over all that we experience in life. It's where we process life. It's where we can, through the gospel, make sense of things. So there is the word and there is prayer. But there is one last thing I want you to consider And it's about, it's tied to quiet times even in community. And we're going to do it today. It's the Lord's Supper. The Lord calls us to a time of silence where, in a minute, we're just going to come to this table right here and dwell on the glories of our Christ bleeding and dying for our sin. This is a time for us to prayerfully uh, hear the word spoken even from the words of institution. This is the time where we come and listen to the Holy Spirit exposing our sin, but also bringing the cross into view to cover us with the blood of Jesus. When you come to the Lord's Prayer, just bring yourself. Bring the honesty of what you bring to the table in sin, and let Jesus attend to you in that relational time with Him. Again, the Lord's Supper is not a checkbox for spirituality, nor are quiet times. That was one of the mistakes I made as a legalist. It's like, okay, did I get my quiet time in today? Good, check. I'm good with God. No, no, no. That misses the whole point. No. It's a time where you and I come to know the Lord who loves us and calls us to live his way of peace. Not with noisy hearts. You know, when I started this series a few months ago with uh, early January, talking about stewardship. Uh, we talked about stewardship of all kinds of things. Time, talents, we'll get to treasure in due time. A whole host of things, relationships, creation, all that. If there's anything you really need to steward in your life, this is it. Your relationship with the Lord may be in the context of a quiet time. If there's anything we want our church to do is to seek God and to listen to Him and His Word individually, even as families, definitely as a body. And then pray to Him in the dialogue of speaking and listening because the Word speaks. You have an opportunity to know the God of the universe and you have an opportunity to move from a noisy world and even sometimes our own noisy hearts to that thing that people cannot buy today. Peace, peace of soul, even peace with God. Let's seek the Lord for that peace now. Let's pray. Lord, we are coming to you today. and A lot of us come with noise in our hearts. A lot of us come with joy in our hearts. There are a lot of different ways we're here before you. But the one thing we want to do now is enter into communion with you through the Lord's Supper, together. And we pray that as we encounter you, as we think on how great you are, what you did for us personally at the cross, that you would lead us, Lord, to a different kind of life, a life of peace of soul because we've done business with you relationally, a life of hope because Christ has accomplished all we ever needed. Lord, we want to know peace, not noise. Lead us there even through this time together, even through your supper. In Jesus' name, amen.